Hey everyone, this is Taylor Halverson from Book of Mormon Central. We've had a lot of requests to add our weekly Come Follow Me videos with myself and Tyler Griffin to our podcast. We are very excited to do this. However, just know that we use a lot of visuals in our videos. So if you ever want to see the visuals, check out Book of Mormon Central on YouTube. We hope you enjoy. Hello, wonderful viewers. My name is Benjamin Griffin, and I am the editor and producer for Come Follow Me Insights. I am so excited to be announcing that we are going to be releasing a short film on the life of Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac on the Messages of Christ YouTube channel. So make sure that you subscribe to Messages of Christ, which is a subsidiary and affiliate of Book of Mormon Central. We are so excited that you have been watching our videos all this time, and we invite you to watch this upcoming video. As a special sneak peek preview, we will be including a scene from this upcoming film on Abraham. We had such a fun time making this video, and we are excited to share it with you. Please enjoy this short little clip. Eternal Father, my God, God of our fathers, blessed be the name of the Lord. I offer this sacrifice for my behalf and for my posterity. If it be possible that we have a son, in thy holy name, amen. I'm Taylor. And I'm Tyler. And I'm Carrie. This is Book of Mormon Central's Come Follow Me Insights. Today, Genesis chapter 12 through 17 and Abraham 1 through 2. And we're joined with our friend, Carrie Muelstein. He's a longtime expert in Egypt and Egyptology and also the Book of Abraham. So we have a lot to learn together. Thanks for being here, Carrie. I'm happy to be here. Let's begin with kind of this, this big picture. Notice as we as we look at where we've been, we've covered the story of Adam and Eve back at the beginning in the creation. We then went to our next dispensation head with Enoch and his story. From there, we've covered Noah, and, and these came at us in fairly rapid succession. You get to the fourth dispensation head, Abraham, with the story of Abraham and Sarah, it's interesting to see how once we get to the story of Abraham, things tend to slow down a little bit and stretch out in our narrative in Genesis. How many chapters do we get in Genesis for his story alone? We get 14 just for Abraham and Sarah, right? And, and it is, it's true, this is almost like a prologue, right? The, 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 in some ways, Genesis is a prologue to the rest of the, yeah. the Bible, that this is how you get to the story of Israel and, and their birth as a nation in the Exodus story, 
but the first uh, 11 chapters are prologue to the rest of Genesis, where you get to the story of the family of Abraham, and really all of scriptures are about Abraham's family, and so you get these huge, cosmic, sweeping, global stories here, and then we zero in on one man and woman and their story and the story of their family, and that's where the rest of Scripture goes is with that story. That's beautiful. So, again, you can see that contrast, 11 chapters of abridging their history and 14 on, on Abraham and Sarah. So this is significant not just for us as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but for all Christians anywhere, as well as all Jews and all Muslims. This, this story is the root of three of the biggest world religions that, that we have in existence today. Yeah, it, it's really globally important. So uh, let's jump in initially to our Pearl of Great Price account, Abraham chapter 1. We're going to do this week's episode in actually two parts. So we're going to cover Abraham 1, 1 and 2 and Genesis 12 through 17 today, and then part 2, we're going to come back with Carrie and do a second standalone episode just covering the entirety of the Book of Abraham and its three facsimiles and some of the questions and concerns that have been expressed about the book and some possible ways to look at how we got the book and what its significance might be in our canon of Scripture. So we'll, if we don't cover it in the first half, we'll cover it in, in part two today. So let's begin here. You have facsimile one, and for anybody who's spent uh, time as a, maybe a, a child or a youth in a longer than expected sacrament meeting and you start scrolling through the Scriptures, there aren't very many pictures in, in these books, but the Book of Abraham has three of them where you've maybe spent some time looking at these pictures. And as we begin with facsimile one, help us, orient us here, Carrie. What do you, what do you, what should we know? Well, I think, I mean, to understand facsimile one, we, we probably have to start even before that with the first couple of verses of chapter one, um, because those first few verses are what set up um, the the story that we have in facsimile one, and really this is where Abraham gets tied into to Adam, right? This is where all of it is tied together because Abraham is really explicit that that he is searching for something. He knows he talks about fathers, and that's not his immediate father, but his ancestors, and he wants to find what they've had, despite the fact that his immediate father has turned away from God. But Abraham is aware from writings he's received, and I presume these are some of the writings that, that was talked about in the book of Moses, but uh, it, from writings he's received, he has become aware of a covenant, right? And, and he speaks of it in verse 2, uh, saying, finding there was greater happiness and peace and rest for me, I sought for the blessings of the fathers and the right whereunto I should be ordained to administer the same. So, he wants to hold the priesthood for the right reason. He wants to be able to help other people receive these blessings. And what kind of blessings do you receive through the priesthood? It's, it's covenant blessings, right? So if we look at verses 3 and 4 especially, Abraham is really specific that the, the blessings or the covenant he's seeking for is the one that Adam had. You get at the end of verse 3 uh, that, that he gets these, even the right of the firstborn or the first man who is Adam or the first father through the fathers unto me. So this this covenant 
that Abraham receives and follows, which ends up in the story that's in, in uh, facsimile one, is the, the covenant that Adam had, and it's just being renewed with Abraham. It's, it's beautiful stuff. Th- that is beautiful. If you look closely at verse 2, notice the, the descriptive words that are being used to describe what Abraham's desires are. Look at this. And finding there was greater happiness and peace and rest for me, I sought for. Notice he's not sitting back waiting for something big to happen. He's actively seeking for the blessings of the fathers and the right one to I should be ordained to administer the same. He's, He's going into it actually expecting not just to answer a curiosity question, but he's expecting to put his agency on the line for the Lord to say, look, I want these blessings and I know it's going to take effort for me once I have them to be able to administer the same and to to bless other people with them. Then he goes on, having been myself a follower of righteousness, so once again, he's not produce, he's not sowing seeds of doubt and seeds of wickedness expecting to harvest fruits of righteousness. He's been a follower of righteousness. He's been – his life is one of, in the face of, as Kerry said, adversity with his own immediate family and father, he's been a worker of righteousness against all odds, and then notice this word, desiring also to be one who possessed great knowledge and to be a greater follower of righteousness. So he's already a follower of righteousness, but he wants to be a greater follower of righteousness. It's this line upon line uh, um, what some have called divine discontent, this idea that ah, I'm trying, but I want I want to be better, and you sense that from these words coming from from Abraham here. And, and it's not just a, uh, as you said, not a greater. It is a greater follower of righteousness, but also possessing greater knowledge, right? So this idea, he's not he doesn't plateau out. We all everyone's going to plateau at some time. Yeah but he's not satisfied on that plateau. As you said, he's got some discontent with that. He's going to keep uh, pursuing that. And desiring to receive instructions and to keep the commandments of God, I became a rightful heir of the high priest. So you're seeing this pattern. Um, Recently, at a devotional with Elder Neil L. Anderson, Elder Anderson had asked Bradley Wilcox to go around and interview people and ask them how they make time for the Lord because President Nelson has pled with us to make time for the Lord every day. I thought it was fascinating. One of those uh, people that he interviewed happened to be President Kevin J. Worthen, the president of BYU, and what he said really struck me as tying in beautifully with what is going on here in chapter 1, verse 2. He said that when he wakes up in the morning, he never checks his his phone for social media, for emails, for texts, for any outside communication. He says, I'll take care of all that later. First, he reads, he studies from the scriptures, and I think specifically he mentioned from the Book of Mormon. He wants to establish that connection with God first, then he's going to deal with all of the other problems and other communications that are going to come his way. Now, that's not to say that everybody has to do exactly what President Worthen does. It's, it's the idea that we find ways to do exactly what Abraham has talked about here so that this week's Come Follow Me lesson isn't just about going, hey, that's really cool for Abraham. Look, look how neat that is that he did that. The idea is, so what could I do 
to actually turn this into part of my story as well, to tie into that legacy. If we want to be sons and daughters of this faithful couple, Abraham and Sarah, from the past, then we probably ought to figure out more of how we can do the works of Abraham and Sarah in our day today. And maybe we can just take that and touch on on one little line that I I think is so important here at the end of verse 2 where he says, and and you you read it, but it says he's desiring to receive instructions. And most people I know aren't looking like, please tell me more things that I should do. But in fact, that's what we should be doing, right? That's what I think President Nelson has told us to do, both when he said you're not going to survive without personal inspiration or with revelation from the Holy Ghost regularly, when he said make time for God, which is what uh, Elder Anderson and, and President uh, Worthen were talking about there. We, we should be. It's actually good for us in our lives if God is giving us instructions. It gives us more opportunity for happiness and joy and progression and everything else. But it's, it's this key. We, we see in Abraham that he wants more righteousness, more knowledge, more instructions. Just tell me what to do, God, and I'll go do it, is what we kind of get from Abraham. I love that. I love that. Now, with scriptures, you'll notice that they'll often put the opposites juxtaposed right next to each other. So we've just introduced Abraham's great desires for righteousness and for knowledge and more revelation and more power and priesthood and capacity to bless the world. That's in verse 1 through 4. And then notice the contrast, verse 5, my fathers having turned from their righteousness and from the holy commandments which the Lord their God had given unto them, unto the worshiping of gods of the heathen, utterly refused to hearken to my voice." So you get this polar opposite right there on page one, and welcome to the world of agency, right? Nobody nobody is sitting in your front room forcing you to love God or forcing you to seek his will. This is your choice, and this Verse 5 is also available to us to to choose, but it never ends well. Look at verse 6, for their hearts were set to do evil and were wholly turned to the god of Elkanah and the god of Libnah and the god of Mamakra and the god of Korosh and the god of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So they turned their hearts to the sacrifice of the heathen. Uh, There's a a beautiful story. We, We don't know if it's true. It's a rabbinical tradition among uh, the the Jewish rabbis from antiquity. It's found in a non-canonical, non-scriptural source. And kind of late. And it's late, so we don't know if it's true, but the principle, I think, is instructive to us. It's about young Abraham working in his father's idol shop. Terah is his father who, in this telling of this story, owns an idol shop. What does he do one day that Terah's gone and... Yeah, this is part of his uh, efforts because you saw how he said there that they refused to hearken to his voice, which tells us, he doesn't say it explicitly, but it tells us he's been trying to teach them, he's been trying to preach against idolatry. And so one of the, the key elements here is that Abraham, knowing that this could go wrong because no one's listening to him and people are pretty set in their idolatry, as he mentions in verse 6 and 7, um, he's still going to try and teach them, and, and what he just te- talking to them hasn't worked, so he, at least in this story, he, he goes into where they have all of the idols, and uh, he breaks them all down except for one, and he, if I remember right, he leaves the little stick right there by that one. By the biggest idol, he's yeah. got the stick. And then everyone comes in and they say, what, what happened? 
all of these were, were broken. What happened to these? And Abraham says, oh, that guy did it, right? And he's pointed at the one idol that's left. He did it. He did it. He, went, he must be jealous of all these others, so he finished them off. Yeah. And, and they say to him, that's ridiculous. You had to have done this. He can't have done this. And Abraham says, well, then why are you worshiping him, right? It's this, this great way of, and I don't know if it's true or not, but it, it, I love the story because it's this, this great way of uh, Abraham trying to show them the foolishness of worshiping idols. And we have to keep in mind, since we do want to relate this to ourselves, that we may not have idols of stone, but we have equally silly idols that seem so, so important to us. And our task is to identify what those might be in our lives. But, uh, but I love the story, and whether it's happened that way or not, there are tons of ancient traditions about Abraham preaching against idolatry in one form or another, and that's what ends up in facsimile one, right? What's depicted in facsimile one? Right, so it, it, which actually brings us back to the very first verse, just for a second before we turn the page over. I think, I, I don't believe that Abraham intended for verse one to be humorous, but <laughs> In my mind, it's one of the funniest verses in all of Scripture in its context of facsimile one, when he opens and says, in the land of the Chaldeans, or do you pronounce that Chaldeans? Uh, Either way is good. Either way is good. At the residence of my fathers, I, Abraham, saw that it was needful for me to obtain another place of residence. Living here is not healthy for me. It's, it's, it's not great yeah. for my life. Yeah, it might be good to live when everyone here is trying to kill me. I'm just saying. It's, it's, that's basically verse 1, right? Exactly. Yeah. So now it, they're describing in verse 7 that their hearts have been turned to the sacrifice of the heathen in offering up their children unto these dumb idols and hearken not unto my voice. These are really great insights, and we've talked in other lessons about how important it is to know the names of people, because names are the lesson. And in the name Abraham or even Abram, you have this element Ab, which means father. And if you look at the first five verses of Abraham 1 and circle, how many times does the word father or fathers show up? And Abraham's name contains that element of father, and really we all are looking to our father. So I love that Abraham's name conveys and invites us to look to the Father, where we get all instruction, all righteousness, all goodness. And just like Abraham leaves his earthly homeland to find a better place, all of us are seeking a heavenly homeland because the earthly one we have is not sufficient. Well, while we're talking about that and the importance of fathers for Abraham, I think Abraham becomes kind of the prototypical story of someone who comes from a less than ideal family background. His father is not the kind of father that we would all hope for, right? He's trying to kill him, for one thing. Um, and so he turns to his heavenly father. It doesn't matter what kind of family background we come from, if we focus on our heavenly father, then we have the father that can do for us what we need to, to do. Amen. That is profound for people who, who have less than ideal family situations today. So now, as we jump into verse 8, now at this time, it was the custom of the priests of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to offer up upon the altar which was built in the land of Chaldea for the offering unto these strange gods, men, women, and children. So isn't that fascinating how the devil takes things that God has established, in this case sacrifice, where Adam and Eve were taught to sacrifice animals to the Lord? and then the devil has a counterfeit where there are a lot of similar elements here, but he has twisted it 
to one of the most evil practices in the history of the world. Um, so Abraham's right there in the middle of this, this practice going on. Look at verse 11. Now the priests had offered up on this altar three virgins at one time who were the daughter, daughters of Oneida, one of the royal descent directly from the loins of Ham. Why? Why did these three daughters lose their life? Because of their virtue. They would not bow down to worship gods of wood or of stone. Therefore, they were killed upon this altar, and it was done after the manner of the Egyptians. Uh, in fact, I, th I think if we, if we look at this, I can't read God's mind to know why does he deliver Abraham and not deliver these three fair virgins that uh, are so full of virtue, but I, I think we can think of at least a couple of things. One, there's clearly a work left for Abraham to do. Abraham has to do something, and I, my guess, that's why he's delivered. And, and maybe we, before we, we move to other things, maybe I can just touch on a couple of historical cultural elements of this uh, sacrifice story. Because what you, you get here is uh, it presents the picture of a mixing of Canaanite and Egyptian religious practices. And, and that's really interesting, and, and we can actually kind of plot out where are the places where the Egyptians did actively try and control some areas uh, because they were key for trade routes and military routes and things like that, and so we're going to guess that Abraham is in one of those areas. There are nearby areas that they just completely left alone because it didn't matter economically and, and from a, a strategic point of view for them. So we can kind of guess where Abraham is, but we also have to think, okay, it talks about they, they sacrificed him. It says specifically after the matter of the Egyptians, and, uh, but what does that mean? Does it mean the Egyptians were often offering children? Probably not. And in fact, I've studied this a lot. I, I do think that the story we see here fits with Egyptian practice very well. We see that the Egyptians did sacrifice people when those people were disturbing the correct religious order and preaching against the worship of Egyptian gods and knocking down gods. That would certainly do that, right? Um, and there was a specific way they would do it on an altar, and you can use a knife, and it's a flint knife that actually they look a lot like what's pictured in this facsimile uh, and that kind of a thing, um, and then they would, would burn them, and in a lot of the traditions they say they were going to burn Abraham, and this one talks about using a knife, and I think that both are probably correct. You use a knife like you do with an animal. You kill it, and then you burn it. Um, but the, the idea of child and children, that's probably more of a Canaanite practice, and we do know that happens from the Bible. We know that happens from some of the local uh, culture around there, and that's what I think you're getting here is this mixing of culture, which is exactly what the text describes, is you, you get those two cultures mixing together, and it, 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 when they mix together, it perfectly creates the scenario that we see happening in this story. It just fits with that time period and with what we know of their practices from that time period. Very helpful. Thank you. So let's jump into verse 12. It came to pass that the priests laid violence upon me that they might slay me also as they did these virgins upon this altar, and that you may have a knowledge of this altar, I will refer you to the representation at the commencement of this record. So he's referring us back to facsimile 1, saying, now I'm going to tell you the story of that picture. Again, we, we don't know if that story of him destroying the other idols in his father's idol shop is, is actual, if it's factual, but if it were, that would be, that would be a case that would cause Tara, the idol worshiper, to say, um, okay, that's a capital offense, what you just did, and deliver him over to the priests. Yeah, it's disturbed that religious order so much that the only response is a ritual response. Yep, right. we're gonna, we're gonna 
sacrifice you on this altar. So verse 13, it was made after the form of a bedstead, such as was had among the Chaldeans, and it stood before the gods of Elkanah, Libnah, Mamakra, Korosh, and also a god like unto that of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And then he tells you, just so you can see a representation of these gods, I've given you the fashion and the figures in that, uh, in that facsimile. Is there anything that we should know about those representations of the gods? Sure. I mean, there, there are plenty of things we could talk about. The, the way it's, it's drawn here, and, and we have to recognize we don't know who – was there a, a drawing originally? Did Abraham make a drawing? If so, was it like this? Or is this someone else who had, takes a drawing that Abraham had and they draw it the way they're used to drawing in an Egyptian style? Or did they, We don't know exactly how uh, this particular form or style gets introduced, but the way it's drawn, these are uh, figures that we would identify typically as the four sons of Horus uh, and the canopic jars that would go often go under an altar like that. Um, but what seems to be happening here is that those Egyptian gods are being – and the, the technical term we use, they're being syncretized, and this is when – and it's a really, really common practice in the ancient world – that you have a god that represents one thing and you meet another culture that has a god that's somewhat similar and you mesh them together. And you say, okay, well, these two gods are kind of the same thing, so we'll call them by these different names. So those names actually seem to be Canaanite names. and, and uh, we can identify at least – well, all four of them in at least some way, and we've got really good evidence for a couple of them. Uh, so Elkanah, for example. But um, – so my guess is – and we don't really know, but my guess is that what we have are depicted here is a kind of a meshing together or a syncretization – that's the technical term for this kind of thing that happens all the time – of Canaanite and Egyptian gods or, or just uh, a, an assigning of Canaanite gods to a typical Egyptian figure, which we also know happened all the time. So, Kerry, let's let's orient people just to make sure we're on the same page here, because we know what we mean when we're using terms like Egyptian and Canaanite, but not everybody always does, and, and sometimes that's that's – it makes scripture study confusing and frustrating and we feel like we, we're not getting it. So a really simple description is you have Egypt, which at the time is one of the – it is a dynastic power in their known world. Yeah. So and this would be the Mediterranean Sea. Mediterranean here. Sea there. Here, just to orient you, there is where we would put Jerusalem today, uh, close to the Dead Sea. There's the Jordan River and the Sea of Galilee. Anciently, that's when he when he keeps using this this term, Canaanite. Canaanite, we're talking about that region. Now, there's, there's some argument as to exactly where Abraham and the, this Ur that he's in in the land of the Chaldeans is. Some people would place it in Mesopotamia, which would be like way over here in, in modern-day Iraq. Um, but based on the evidence from this and, – and there's people who even without the Book of Abraham have, have proposed this – but based on this evidence of the Egyptian syncretization that's going on here, um, it, it's quite likely that it's, it's kind of up here in the border between Syria and Turkey. Um, which Canaanite is a kind of a weird term. It's what we apply to all sorts of older people that we don't know exactly what they worship and what they, they did. <laughs> They're not re it's not really a uniform culture, uh, but there are some uniform elements. So it's uh, this is kind of Canaan proper, but we still often use this term for this whole area. Uh, and so it's quite likely that Abraham and we have some some dif different kinds of evidence. We can bring in archaeological, textual, and, and scriptural evidence to to do to deduce this. But I suspect that this is probably the area that it's happening in, and it's got a lot of this kind of Canaanite or Semitic religious influence, and 
Egyptian influence. So now, verse uh, 15 says, And as they lifted up their hands upon me, that they might offer me up and take away my life, behold, I lifted up my voice unto the Lord my God. Let me pause there. Look back at the facsimile. Again, as Carrie said, we don't have Abraham's actual first autograph version of facsimile number one, so is this a copy of a copy of a copy times ten or times two, or is it somebody taking something else that he had produced? And We just don't know. But what we do have, what God has given us, it has some pretty interesting features, and I'm no Egyptologist, but I spent some time as a kid in sacrament meeting studying <laughs> this, and some things that stick out to me that, that are fascinating are if I am on an altar and some guy is coming towards me with a knife, I can almost guarantee where my eye is going to be. It's going to be on that knife, and you're going to notice where Abraham's eyes are in this particular version of facsimile one, he's not even looking at the guy, nor the knife. He's not looking at his problem or his potential problem, he's looking heavenward, he's looking to the solution, he's looking to God, and you'll notice where his hands are. His hands aren't trying to defend himself against this guy. His hands in this depiction are in a in a attitude of pleading. Yeah, it's a supplication gesture to to God. Um, I like that because you and I all have in our own ways these struggles, these trials, these oppositions of the world coming at us, and it would be easy to focus only on those problems which would probably lead to greater anxiety and stress and panic, whereas this facsimile to me teaches a lesson all by itself just in the way it's depicted to say, look to God and live. Well, I, I find it fascinating that if we actually rotated this 90 degrees, it actually looks like Abraham is trying to make progress on the covenant path and you have a Satan character who's trying to thwart him. Well, and typically in Egyptian symbolism, when you have the legs uh, spread like that, it, it does denote movement, try, the power and ability to move and progress. That's, that's really that's good. What, what it means. So, In fact, actually, if you look at ancient Egyptian uh, statuary, many of you have seen Egyptian statues, the pharaoh almost yeah. always is never standing straight like this. It's often with the feet askance like this in a power pose of movement. And Abraham has that. Yep. And actually, that's what God offers all of us, the power to walk with him. So the Lord hearkened and heard, and he filled me with the vision of the Almighty, and the angel of his presence stood by me and immediately unloosed my bands. It's beautiful, this, this redemptive story, an atonement object lesson, a redemption story yet again, saved from death and delivered from that death by God and our bands are loosed. It's, it's powerful. And then, what does he hear? Verse 16, his voice said, was unto me, Abraham, Abraham, behold, my name is Jehovah. Now, do we have an earlier account of him hearing the name change from Abram, which is what Terah called him, right. to Abraham? 
No, so, and, and in fact, if you look at the earliest manuscripts that we have uh, where, you know, Joseph Smith's scribes are copying down the book of Abraham, it's originally Avram, or uh, Abram here, uh, Avram in Hebrew. So, yeah, it's, it, it's, as they were editing it, they la later changed this to Abraham, I assume, to make it so that people just understood who we were talking about here. Uh, but it was, this is before his experience of having his name changed. And that's the way it read originally, and then it, it was edited at some point to, to read Abraham. Good. So, so word meaning, meanings, um, Abram, exalted father, Abraham. Father of multitudes, which is bound up in the covenant God makes to Abraham that he'll be a father of many nations, which fulfills his desire, Abraham's desire to be a father of many nations. And by consequence, all of us as children of Abraham, we all get access to those same promises. And, and, and the, the kind of staking out of names is an important part of the, the covenant-making uh, process in ancient uh, covenants between nations and, and certainly in the scriptures. And so I suspect we have that starting here because we get uh, God stating his name very clearly, right? My name is Jehovah and I have heard thee. That sounds like the beginning of a covenant-making process to me. Uh, and so I suspect this is where it begins because also the next thing he says is, I'm going to take you away from here to a strange land. Well, that's one of the main parts of the covenant is I'm going to give you this other land. And so I think we have the, be the beginning of the covenant-making process that we'll look at. It happens more and more fully, I think, as we read today's reading. We see Abraham enter into it. A lot of people have argued, well, so why is he entering into the covenant? Like, is it this one was a precursor and the next one he's kind of telling him about it and the last one he finally gets into the covenant? Or are these different traditions? And people ask all these questions. But I think we enter into the covenant in stages, right? We do. We enter it, uh, into it at baptism, but we enter into it more fully in the temple and more fully as we're sealed in the temple at uh, spouse and so on. So we, we enter into the covenant in stages, and I think we see not necessarily a precise mirror of that, but a, a, an echoish kind of mirror of it in the Abraham story. That's beautiful. If you jump down to verse 18, Notice he, he takes that idea, mm -hmm. exactly what you just described, behold, I will lead thee by my hand. The leading by the hand denotes a journey, it denotes a process, it denotes a passage of time, not a, I'm going to do this in an instant and then leave you alone because you've got everything you need. I'm going to lead you by the hand and I will take thee to put upon thee my name, even the priesthood of thy father and my power shall be over thee. Did you notice that? God gave him his name in verse 16, very clearly, my name is Jehovah, but I'm going to put my name upon you, Abraham. You're going to have my name put upon you. And from that point on, Abraham and later on Sarah, those two become the, the father and mother of all the faithful. If you're saved, you find salvation by being adopted into their faithful family. And we, when you get adopted in, you take upon you the family name. Well, what's the family name? It's the name of God that he has placed upon them. And we do that through our – because we enter into the same covenant, we very much focus on taking the name of Jehovah or Christ upon us. So as we turn over to now starting uh, the story in verse 20 through the end, you're going to get a lot of description here about Pharaoh, the original Pharaoh, and Egypt, and Ham, and Egyptus, and the, the patriarchal line coming down through that family. We're not going to spend a ton of time on that. Um, you'll notice that in verse 
27, it says, Now Pharaoh, being of that lineage by which he should not have the right of priesthood, notwithstanding the Pharaohs would fain claim it from Noah through him, therefore my father was led away by their idolatry, which brings us back to something Taylor talked about earlier, where you take those, those ideas, those covenants, those priesthood ordinances that had been given anciently, and they've modified them and owned them for their own purposes. Uh, and we come down to verse 30, it talks about this famine prevailing, so we're going to watch wherever he is, wherever Ur really is, they're going to start making a transition over towards Egypt. So he's going to leave here, comes down into here, into this new land because the famine is so bad, and then from there it's going to bring us uh, all the way down into Egypt. Um, turn the page over to chapter 2, which is where it's describing this, this journey, starting in verse 1, and then verse 2 describes some of the – we're introduced to some additional characters in the family. It came to pass that I, Abraham, took Sarai to wife, and Nahor, my brother, took Milcah to wife, who was the daughter of Haran. Haran is the third brother of Abraham. So you're going to find that now that the, the narrative slows down a little bit and starts flushing things out, you're going to get more detail about some of the relationships, as we just saw in verse 2, with uh, Nahor marrying Milcah, who's the daughter of Haran, his, his brother, so this would be his niece. How do these family relationships work in, in the way we label them in antiquity? Because in English we have all kinds of words to show various familial relationships, but not always the case in antiquity. Yeah, so it's, it gets a little bit confusing um, because we'll, we'll get someone who's said uh, to be a mother or a daughter or a sister, but there aren't words uh, in – and we don't know exactly what Abraham is speaking, but in any of the languages that are potential things he's speaking, there's not a word for aunt or niece and so on, uh, and so you just say if it's, if it's an older a uh, female relative, it's mother, and this works for men as well, older male relative, it's a father. If it's uh, someone of the same generation, so cousins, second cousins, third cousin, twice removed, that's a sister or a brother, and younger generations, nephews and nieces, whatever else, those would be children or sons or daughters. And so when we talk about uh, Sarah being his sister, there's some sources that make it seem like she really is his half-sister, but it's not – we can't nail it down really precisely, but she's some kind of close relative along that same generational line, that kind of horizontal line, so she would be correctly referred to as sister. It's the only word you can use to describe her. So as you work your way down that first column, verse 4 tells you that he left the land of Ur to go into the land of Canaan, and then verse 5, the famine abated, and my father tarried in Haran and dwelt there, as there were many flocks in Haran, and my father turned again unto his idolatry, therefore he continued in Haran. More heartbreak for Abraham, I, right? I just think it's, it's kind of the Book of Mormon pride cycle going on here in this, in this family of Abraham, that idea of boy, it's a famine, we're, we're going to die, everybody gets humble, turns to God, please deliver us, and that humility, that repentance, God does deliver, and now we're prospering again. Ah, okay, now we can get back to 
back to the way things used to be, and back to the idol worship goes Terra. And forget about God, right? And forget about God, yeah. because I don't need him anymore, because I've, I've got food in my belly again, and, and the rains are coming, and we're good. And maybe we can use that as a segue to the next topic of this chapter, because we often talk about the pride cycle, and that's that phrase is ingrained in members of the church like we won't, couldn't believe, but I think there's actually a, a better, more descriptive term, because it's not just the pride cycle, it's a covenant or a covenant corruption cycle, right? Because everything you just talked about happens in terms of the covenant. When you keep the covenant, you get the blessings, and then you think it's because you're great, and so you stop keeping the covenant. It's the same cycle, but it's always connected to the covenant, and, and that's exactly what we're seeing here, is that Abraham was keeping the covenant, his father had stopped, started again, stops again, Abraham's going to stay consistent. He doesn't go through the cycle. He doesn't get to the corruption part of the covenant corruption cycle. He just stays in the covenant, and that's which has started to be established, but we're going to see it established more fully as the next thing in this chapter. So to, to verify that, look at verse 6. But I, Abraham, and Lot, my brother's son, prayed unto the Lord, and the Lord appeared unto me. So they're prospering now, but it would have been easy to say, ah, eat, drink, and be merry, we're good, but he continued to turn to the Lord, prayed to the Lord, and the Lord appeared unto me and said unto me, Arise, and take Lot with thee, for I have purposed to take thee away out of Haran, and to make thee a minister to bear my name in a strange land, which I will give unto thy seed after thee for an everlasting possession, when they hearken to my voice. Did you notice that? When? It's a condition. It's not a guarantee. There's nothing you need to do, I'm just going to force this on you whether you want it or not. It's, no, when they hearken to my voice, I'm going to promise this land to them. Yeah, and uh, let's say verse 7 and 8 is, again, we see this, this covenant, uh, I guess we could call it the kind of uh, trappings of the covenant, where he says, again, identifying himself, I am the Lord thy God, and identifying who he is, I dwell in the heavens, uh, and the earth is my footstool. I stretch out my hand over the sea, and so he tells them he's, he's the one who creates and controls creation. We get down to verse 8, my name is Jehovah, and I know the end from the beginning, therefore my hand shall be over thee. Right Now, starting in verse 9, he's going to really start to get in specifics of the covenant, but always the first element is establishing who you are, establishing who I am, our relationships. I am God, the creator. You're Abraham. I'm going to help you out, but let's be clear who we are, and now we're going to get into um, the, the specifics of the covenant. So now these are the promises that God is offering to Abraham, and we may be amazed at what God says, but I want all of us to pause and remember that these promises are also ours. That's why we focus so much on the Abraham and Sarah story, is that what God is offering them, by extension, all of us have access to the same blessings. And here's these beautiful promises. I will make of thee a great nation. I will bless thee above measure and make thy name great among all nations. I'm going to pause there. We talked in the last lesson about how the people of the Tower of Babel, they wanted to make their own name great. And in society today, we see people wanting to make their names great. And what we learn in the Abraham story is that that is God's work. It is God's work to make our name great. And it becomes great because we actually take his name upon us. And thou shalt be a blessing unto thy seed after thee, and that in their hands they shall bear the ministry and priesthood unto all nations. And I will bless them through thy name, for as many as receive this gospel shall be called after thy name, and shall be accounted thy seed, and shall rise up and bless thee as father. 
And, and notice how we, we get this kind of extension of names going on, right? So I'm God and you're going to take my name upon you, but because you're doing that, Abraham, and you're becoming like me, then other people are going to be involved with your name, right? And, and we get this, this is very similar to what the God does, the Father does with Christ, right? He sends his son, his son comes down to send others, those others bring people to Christ and he brings them to the Father, and that's the exact pattern that we're seeing here. That's a cool connection. Is, that, that's amazing, and isn't that, isn't that neat to notice that God could have prevented the famine? God could have made it so that Abraham and Terah and Lot and everybody could have just stayed prospering up in Ur, but the famine caused some movement. They come down to Canaan, and the famine keeps going, and they're going to move into Egypt. So what you get with Abraham and Sarah's story is this little microcosm back then of what God is doing with his covenantal promises today. He's, he's spreading it among the nations. He's spreading it among different peoples rather than keeping it insular of don't let anyone in and don't you dare go out and, and interact with and talk with anybody. Abraham and Sarah's story is a perfect example of what happens when God scatters the people. It's not just the people, it's also this message, the scriptures, the, the connection with God and that name. And, and, and I think, again, just my opinion, but I think this, what we're reading right now in the next verse is one of the biggest reasons that the book of Abraham was restored to Joseph Smith, because if you study the covenant and the way that we have it in Genesis and the way we have it in the book of Abraham is very similar except for one thing. There is one element that is completely missing in the Genesis account that is a really big deal in the account the way we get it in the book of Abraham, and it's this idea that they will take, bear the ministry and the priesthood that we had in verse 9 or in verse 11. After this first part, very typical of what we see in Genesis, I will bless them that bless thee and curse them that curse thee, but listen to this, and in thee that is in thy priesthood, and in thy seed that is in thy priesthood, for I give unto thee a promise that this right shall continue in thee and in thy seed after thee, uh, and so on. But then, then he says, even with the blessings of the gospel, which are the blessings of salvation, even of life eternal. And so there's this obligation. If we read the book of Abraham account, one of the main obligations of the Abrahamic covenant that we're all part of is to share that covenant with others by administering priesthood ordinances to them that make that covenant available, right? That is a huge part of this. You do not find that in the Genesis account. I think if you read first Nephi, uh, Nephi's vision, and it talks about, before it talks about plain and precious truths being taken out, it says that the covenants are taken out. And I think this is the part of the covenant that Satan wanted out the most. If you get this part out, it doesn't matter. Okay, we got a few small group of people that have the covenant, no one else, Satan wins, all right? Uh, but if, if this part is restored as it was, that part of the obligation of the covenant is to give the covenant to everyone, to all the world, now we're doing God's work. Yeah, that part right there, that little phrase, shall all the families of the earth be blessed, that this covenant wasn't intended to be exclusive to that one group, it's to bless everybody. That is one of the most oft-repeated concepts in Scripture. You find it in the Old Testament, you find it in the New Testament, you find it in the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, the Pearl of Great Price, repeatedly, is that God isn't just giving us those blessings so that we enjoy them in isolation. In fact, if we want to be more Christ-like, the greatest joy comes in turning outward and sharing all the good things that God has given us with as many people as we can. Hence, 
our zeal for missionary work and our zeal for yeah. sharing and teaching and never tiring of giving those things that heaven has given to us. And, and temple work as well, it's the same thing, right? Both sides of the veil. That's right. Both yeah, we want you dead or alive. Yep. Now verse 12, after the Lord had withdrawn from speaking to me and withdrawn his face from me, I said in my heart, thy servant has sought thee earnestly, now I have found thee. I love that verse. Yeah. I love how that ends. Because you see that tie-in to those first verses in, in Abraham 1 where he was just so deeply desirous, and he's had all this trauma and difficulty, and now he's like, God has saved me. This deep desire I've had has now been fulfilled. And again, it's tied into the covenant. What he says in those first few verses, I want those blessings of that covenant, and once he gets the covenant, he says, ah, I found thee. This is how we find God is through his covenant. And then notice, he doesn't, he doesn't stop there and say, ah, I've arrived. Now I can now I can relax on right. the covenant path. Verse 13, thou didst send thy send thine angel to deliver me from the gods of Elkanah, and I will do well to hearken unto thy voice. There's, there's something beautifully Christ-like about that. You'll notice the pattern even with the Savior, Jesus Christ Himself. When he came to the Nephites in 3 Nephi 11, here he is. He's a resurrected, glorified, perfected being. He, he's a god. He, he's, he's arrived. He's finished. And when he comes to those Nephites, when he gets into verse 15, or chapters 15 and 16 of 3 Nephi, he tells them, I need to deliver a message to you that I was commanded of the Father to give to you, and I'm going to fulfill that commandment. Here he is a resurrected god, and what is he still doing? Keeping commandments given to him by God the Father. I think there's a beautiful pattern for us that Jesus and Abraham are both showing us in, in different spheres that obedience to God's commandments is not a chore. It's not, it's not distasteful. It's not, ugh, fine, if, if I have to, I'll do it. It's a, please, tell me, what can I do better and let me, let me joyfully try to figure out how to to make that happen in my life. Yeah. Desiring to receive more instruction, right? And it just never ends. So verse 15 is where he takes Sarai to wife. You'll notice Sarai, her name is going to get changed to Sarah. Abram changed to Abraham. So, so they both begin with one name and then they become something else. A, a new name is, is given to them as they move forward as the father and the mother of the faithful. And, and that's, again, indicative of covenant. As you make a covenant, you become a new person, you take on a new life, and so you get a new name to represent the new person as you're reborn or born again. Yeah, like in baptism, you take on a new name. You take on the name of Christ. So we see this in the Bible that there's these transition stages in people's lives. When they make covenants, they are given a new name, and it's often a signal that they are now in a new covenantal relationship, and we have the same in our lives. So the, the rest of this chapter, this new couple, Abram and Sarah now, Abraham and Sarah, uh, he, he describes verse 16, eternity was our covering, mm -hmm and our rock and our salvation as we journeyed from Haran by the way of Jershon to come to the land of Canaan, and he built an altar, offered sacrifice, and verse 19, the Lord appeared unto me in answer to my prayers and said unto me, unto thy seed will I give this land. So he's in that more traditional, what we would call the land of Israel, the holy land, 
land of Canaan, and God promised him, I'm going to give you and your seed this land, and then he built another altar, called again upon the name of the Lord, and then he journeys down into Egypt in chapter 22, or verse 22. I'm going to jump in here. What's interesting is he keeps building altars. One time he says, Mm -hmm. it's to ask the Lord devoutly, will you please remove the famine? Now, remember, God promised, I'm going to give you land. Now, this is kind of a challenge. Like, would you want to worship a God who says, I'm going to give you land, and you get there, and it's a famine? Wait, did God lie to you? And so, Abraham has to find himself all the way down in Egypt to get away from the famine, and it's not like, well, God hasn't answered his prayers yet. So you might say God, Abraham could just be unfaithful and say, I'm not believing anymore. He also has promised a lot of seed, children, and what happens in Egypt? Sarah gets taken. So it's really interesting, immediately God actually puts Abraham to the test to see if Abraham will trust that God's promises are sure these very clear promises. You're going to have land, you're going to have posterity. Oops, you don't get either of those right now. And Abraham persists and endures, and the way the story unfolds is that Abraham shows trust and faith in God, and he gets all those things back. So I just think it's compelling. Even in our own lives, we may pray to God. We may place things on the altar. We want something. We're pleading with him to give us something he's promised. We have to endure to the end. We have to be faithful like Abraham and Sarah to give ourselves, give God the time to work out his salvation in our lives. And it seems, honestly, if you look at his whole story now as we jump into Genesis chapter 12, everything that we've covered from Abraham chapters 1 and 2, and now as we proceed forward, I can't find a time in Abraham's life where, where he has this long period of, oh, finally, okay, things are, mm-hmm. there, there's no testing going on, God's just prospering everything, and it's just smooth, flowing, easy, clear waters for him. It, it seems that that his and Sarah's life in its entirety is one of test after test after test, and gratefully, we call them the father and mother of all the faithful because he just seems to find a way to stay faithful. And I, I think we sometimes underestimate how much is asked of him, right? He's going from an urban lifestyle to becoming a nomad for the rest of his life. He's going to be in a land that it will eventually be given to him and his seed, but God actually tells him it's going to be 400 years, just so you know. And so he's living uh, where other people feel like they control, and he always has to be careful of that, moving from place to place to place continually. I mean, it is never easy, and as we've said, never seen it for a long time. How are these prayers and these blessings going to be answered? Nothing about Abraham's life is easy at any point. So, let's jump into chapter 12, Genesis, where we, we transition from, in a, in a roundabout sort of way, what could be considered a Joseph Smith translation of this story because we're getting all of this additional stuff from the book of Abraham. Now we jump into the biblical narrative, chapter 12, verse 10, and there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down into Egypt to sojourn there, and, for and, the famine was grievous. Sorry, maybe I can just interrupt and say, I, I think that that just be where we see the famine in Egypt in both these stories, it gives us the idea that this first part of chapter 12 is probably just a different version of what we had in chapter 2, uh, and neither one is more full or, or more or less correct. They both just give us some different things, different information, and there's overlap between them, but it seems to be this kind of establishing of the covenant. I don't know that we can tell that for sure, but that seems to cover the same ground, as it were. And I'll point out, we have all this beautiful new revelation that we get, this, this new doctrine and updates to the story from the book of Abraham. If all you had was the Bible, 
there's actually this incredible plot twist, right? There's this cosmic history going on, and then suddenly out of nowhere, God shows up. You go from chapter Genesis 11 to Genesis 12, and out of nowhere, God shows up and chooses one man to give him all these blessings. And from a literary standpoint, this is actually kind of mind-blowing plot twist. And there's this deep focus on one man and his family and all these promises that God wants to give. And it really captures your attention. Now, what I love is that we have all this enormous backstory of Abraham's ongoing faithfulness to the point that God says, okay, I can trust you that you will always follow me, and therefore, I'm giving you these eternal blessings. And because of your faithfulness for so many years, you will be a blessing for so many people, because these blessings will now be offered to everybody who comes through you or joins your family. So I just kind of love how the Bible puts it together. I actually love both approaches. Yeah. Now, let's shift gears and and go fairly quickly through some of the elements of this story. We come down into Egypt. Sarah apparently is very good-looking, and Abraham's concerned. When we get here, they're going to kill me so they can marry you. So you get this, this interesting little interlude in this story where verse 13 says, Say, I pray thee, that thou art my sister, that it may be well with me for thy sake, and my soul shall live because of thee. And a lot of people are a little bothered by that because they would say, well, it looks like he's lying, but based on what you've said about names of relationships, it would tie in. Yeah, they're just choosing which part to emphasize, and and I think it's also key in the in the book of Abraham account, it's actually God who instructs it. He's that's the one that right. comes up with the ideas as opposed to Abraham, and that, that's also a little bit of a game changer, so. Absolutely. And then while he's in Egypt, um, you'll notice in back in your book of Abraham, facsimile number three, he, he describes that as Abraham sitting on Pharaoh's throne teaching the people about the cosmos, about, about eternity, about God, teaching the gospel, which is what that Abrahamic covenant was intended to do. Go, teach, share this knowledge. In fact, in the book of Abraham, uh, and, and in Come, Follow Me, we've already covered chapter 3, but, but you, get, you go from uh, chapter 2, where the covenant is really outlined and established, to chapter 3, where he says specifically, I'm sending you to Egypt, here's what you're going to teach them, use astronomy to teach them these principles, and then we don't get the account of his doing it, we just get the picture that tells us that he's doing it. The account was probably in the book of Abraham, we, we don't have the whole thing, but uh, all we get is that drawing that says he did it. That's right. So now, in chapter 13, he returns from Egypt into Canaan, and you'll notice verse 4, unto the place of the altar which he had made there at the first, and he calls on the name of the Lord again. He just keeps coming back again and again to the Lord. I guess the question that begs asking is, when can we stop going to the temple? When can we stop going to the house of prayer and taking the sacrament? When when have we done enough? And I think Abraham would say, just keep going. Yeah. You just keep going. Um, and so now you get this interesting story between Lot and Abraham, and they've they've prospered in Egypt. They've, they've got a lot of possessions, a lot of servants, a bigger household. They come into this land of Canaan, and there's obvious uh, discord between the, the keepers of the flocks and the different families, and, and you can see that this isn't going to work to have us in the same place, so Abraham says to Lot, you pick. Where do you want to go, and what does Lot pick? He picks the fertile valley of where the Jordan River flows, down towards where all the people are living down there because it's so fertile and there's water. 
So he goes that way, and Abraham goes to the west, um, into the less fertile part. And this is that famous story of the, that you've probably heard in a seminary lesson or a Sunday school lesson. Um, in verse 12 of chapter 13, Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent toward Sodom. It's that idea of putting your tent door, you pitch your tent towards the city of Sodom in this case. Well, the next thing we're going to hear about Lot is his family has moved into Sodom, and then the next thing is Sodom is going to have moved into his family. It's that progression of where do you, where do you pitch your, your tent facing, and many of you have probably had lessons uh, tying into King Benjamin's people where they, they were in their tent with the tent door facing the temple and facing God's prophet. Um, beautiful object lesson there for us to consider. And the, and the, the Hebrew word here, kind of the odd, when it says toward, kind of indicates like it's going that direction. So uh, I, I think it probably is with the tent door that facing that. I don't know that we can tell that for sure, but it's certainly that that's where he's heading, right? That's his orientation. That's that's the movement he's going. That's the direction he's, he's going. That's where he's going to end up, yeah. ultimately. And then you get into chapter 14, where Lot is actually captured in, in these battles that are – among the Canaanites, there have been a lot of battles, and from the book of Abraham we've, we find that God has told him that the Canaanite wickedness is going to be – become so – so widespread and so deep that they are ripe in their iniquity. And you're seeing this here um, with these battles taking place, and Lot is taken. So verse 13, there came one that had escaped and told Abram, the Hebrew, that this has happened, and so Abram goes to help deliver, and we get introduced to one of our most famous biblical uh, characters that is largely overlooked. Now, some are like, wait, how can he be famous and yet largely overlooked? It's thanks to Restoration Scripture, Melchizedek's story and place in our gospel dispensation today, as well as back in his own day, I think has been restored, yeah. largely. What yeah. do we know about Melchizedek? Well, we know a lot of things. We know he's the uh... Uh, the person who the priesthood is named after because he's so holy and righteous that he is a ruler who had uh, all sorts of discord but but brought peace uh, because he got his people to be so righteous. He seems to be the the kind of file leader for Abraham. He's the one who ordains Abraham. Abraham pays tithes to him. Uh, there are even some hints uh, from some modern-day prophets that perhaps even was successful in having his city translated. We don't know that, but there's some suggestions that then that may be what happens, uh, and so he's a, a type or a symbol of Christ for sure. I mean, you get this sense that he's so important that you actually do end up with a lot of uh, apocryphal books and pseudepigraphic books about uh, Melchizedek. It's, everyone can tell there's something here, and so people start making stuff up, but um, but uh, there's no doubt that and, – and some of it's probably preserving ancient traditions that are correct, you know, you get this mixing, but there's, there's no doubt you get the sense that there's something more here, and we're blessed to have Restoration Scripture that gives us more. Good. Yeah, Genesis 15 is a very interesting chapter. In some ways, I actually think it's one of the most significant chapters in scriptures, particularly the ending. We get kind of this strange story. Most of us don't pay attention to it. If we do, it's a little confusing, where you get 
these animals that are cut up, like yeah. the cutting covenant. Can you tell us about that for yeah. a bit? I think the symbolism in, in 15 is incredible. So this is another place where Abraham will enter more fully into the covenant. And, and you can tell it's, it's really more fully. Um, and he does it by this ordinance that I, we, we don't really read of anywhere else, but it's wrought, it's, well, it's fraught with symbolism where he takes several animals and he, and he cuts them in half and lays half on this side and half on that side. And that seems odd. And I'm not sure we understand all of the symbolism behind this, but there's a, a, quite a bit of symbolism I, I think we can understand. In Hebrew, the, there are two phrases that they use for uh, entering into the covenant. One of them is enter, but that's not used very often. You, you enter into it. Um, but most often you say you cut a covenant. Uh, and, and that's really interesting because it's, it's almost an oxymoron because the, the word for cutting means to cut, but the word for covenant, breed, uh, has that at its roots to, to bind, right? So like it's, it's cognates or it's, it's similar words in, in uh, Akkadian uh, actually can mean fetters, to bind someone to something or together, uh, like handcuffs kind of a thing, right? Uh, it's, it, it has binding at its root, and yet in some ways its element also has to, to cut asunder, uh, we actually have a word like that in English, to cleave. To cleave means both to cut something and to hold to it uh, tightly, right? To, to put it together tightly and not let it go apart. Uh, and, and so there, there, that's an interesting uh, tension. And I, I don't know that this is the symbolism, but I kind of think that it may be a little bit of the idea that uh, because of the fall, we are cut off from God's presence. We are separated from him. Uh, but then we will have to go into that gap between us and God and partake of a covenant that can bring us back together. It's, it's the, the, uh, the same thing that uh, separates us in a way can also be part of what brings us back together. And of course, Christ is the one who makes both the covenant and the coming back together with God possible. So I think we have a, a, a lot of symbolism in here. And note that, that Abraham has them separated, and it's not until the burning, fiery lamp goes between them, which it really means light. It's not really a lamp. It's a burning light is what it says, which probably signifies some kind of uh, angelic being, but I think probably God. If not, it's an angel representing God. So the idea is that once God's presence is there, uh, then that cutting can be overcome with a binding, uh, and we are bound to God, and that's what can overcome our being separated from him. The scriptures sometimes feel like a foreign country, what we're trying to say is the gospel isn't foreign. It's all about God wanting to be bound to us. And sometimes the way the stories are expressed might seem confusing, but the essence is God is simply trying to get us back into his presence and to be in relationship with us. To bridge that gap between the two animals, right? He is the bridge between the, the, yeah. the two halves. He, actually, he is the covenant path that yeah. brings it together. So a way that we've talked about it before, this nutshell definition, and, and there's a lot more to it. This is, this is very simple. The covenant connection with God is him saying, I will be your God and you will be my people. If you look, if you search for that phrase and search for that phrase, your God, my people, you're going to find these, these, these phrases showing up all over scripture. Old Testament, New Testament, Book of Mormon, this idea that any covenant that we make with God, kind of back to Carrie's idea of we make them in stages, line upon line, precept upon precept, we increasingly say, I want you now more than ever to be my God, and I want to be thy people more than ever before, rather than going after the gods of the world. I want to 
deepen and strengthen and enrich that covenant connection because God has established it, and he did that because of his goodness, not because of ours. And and, and bringing this up brings up a really important thing. I mean, the, the rest of this reading really is about the covenant. All of this reading is about the covenant, and, and this is a, a foundational step in all of Scripture. The, the, today's lesson that we're covering today, you will not be able to understand the rest of Scripture if you don't understand the Abrahamic covenant, what it entails, and, and you're going to keep getting it here, you're going to get it in Leviticus and Deuteronomy and so on, but we have to understand what that covenant is and how important and central it is to the rest of Scripture, because every prophet in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament, you get it in the Doctrine and Covenants, you get it in the Book of Mormon, they presuppose that you know what the covenant is and you understand it, and they just make allusions to it. They just kind of refer to it. So they'll refer to it just by saying, then I will be your God, or then you will be my people. And we have to clue in and say, ah, talking about the covenant, or uh, then you'll have great posterity, right? Isaiah does this all the time. There'll be so many people, you don't have room, you have to make your tent larger. Well, what he's doing is he's talking about the covenant. Oh, then you'll really prosper, because these are all blessings we've been talking about and reading and in, the in, land. in today's, right? Or then you'll receive the land, or then I will protect you. All of those are things we've just read, we're part of the promises of the covenant, and they're referred to all over in Scripture, but if you miss that they're referring to the covenant, then you're not going to understand what they were intending for you to understand. But once you start seeing that, that covenant, and because covenant is about our relationship with God and binding us to God, so covenant and relationship with God is the central tenet of all of Scripture, but we're talking this year about Old Testament, uh, it's the central tenet of the Old Testament, that God wants to bind us to him, and, and, and bring us back to him, and of course Christ is the one that makes that possible, once you understand that, then you're going to see covenant everywhere, and, and, and everything will make just a little bit more sense to you. I love it. So, do you find it odd that Abraham has been given all these promises in posterity? We're back in chapter 15. Look at the stars. If you can count them, then you can count your posterity or the sands of the seashore. There you go. And yet, he's getting along in age, and Sarah's getting along in age, and those promises don't seem to be coming to pass for him directly right then, right there, but he doesn't shake his fist in, in anger and frustration at heaven. He continues to say, I don't know how, but I'm going to trust, uh, you're still my God, I trust you, and the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, the, the writer of the Hebrews points that out, that Abraham and Sarah exercise this incredible faith in the face of such odds. And, and I think it helps us, at least in our trials, if we can identify with Abraham, because uh, uh, while Abraham has this faith, it doesn't mean he's without question, right? He is saying, okay, God, how is this going to work? Is it, I've got this servant, Eleazar, is that how this is working? Right? And, and, and we do the same thing. Okay, I thought this meant this, but maybe it means this, and sometimes it does mean the other thing, and so on. I mean, we'll all go through those things where we're like, I don't, I don't understand how this is working out, but we, and neither did Abraham, but Abraham still believed it would work out, and that's the key. And so he still presses on, he still keeps his covenant, he doesn't give up on all of it, even though it doesn't quite make sense to him, and it's been a long time. Like, we're, depending upon which account, whether you go with the Genesis account or the Book of Abraham account, we're talking like 25 to 30-something years uh, where Abraham's waiting for this to happen. That's a lot of patience and a lot of faith, and it's not without question, it's not without struggle, but he maintains his faith, and that's something we can learn from. 
Beautiful. T to tie into that, you'll notice that sometimes those questions and those, hmm, I wonder if it's going to be fulfilled this way, sometimes we do our best effort to fulfill the prophecy or to, to bring to pass those covenantal blessings. And that's exactly what happens in chapter 16. Abraham and Sarah, I mean, you can imagine these conversations. Sarah is the one who says, hmm, maybe, maybe I need to give Hagar, my handmaid, to you to wife, and her children, I'm going to claim them as my own. Yeah. Maybe, I, I maybe that's that. how it gets fulfilled. Yeah, I love that, because you see them saying, okay, is there something else that we should be doing? Is there another step we should be taking to make this happen? And they get their thinking hats on, right? They're getting creative and say, okay, let's see if we can figure out how to make this work. They work within their culture, and God doesn't actually reprimand them. He actually lets them work within their own culture, and he works with them in their own culture and time. And Ishmael is going to be born through that process with Hagar, and you'll notice, so he's about 14 years older than Isaac, so, so it's not as if, okay, that was a nice attempt, but let me give you the right answers. We're still talking 14 years or 13 years before the promise of her getting pregnant. That is a long time to still be scratching your head saying, did we do the right, is this the right thing, or did we mess up? Yeah, how does this happen? How does this work? And in a beautiful way, you get Ishmael becoming the father of many nations mm -hmm. that to this day many people look back to the story of Abraham and they see Abraham and, and his faithfulness through the lenses of Ishmael's posterity that they, they are a part of. In fact, to the point where if you read the Quran and you read about the sacrifice of Abraham and Isaac, it's not Isaac in that story, it's the sacrifice of Abraham and Ishmael. And it's clear that Ishmael has a covenant with many, many blessings. Correct. And those blessings are going to get going to be fulfilled. So now we get to Genesis chapter 17. Verse 1 is a very powerful verse. Now sometimes as members of the church, we fall into the trap of perfectionism. We believe that we have to make ourselves perfect, and we actually stop God, or we try to stop God from making us perfect. Notice what God says to Abraham. Well, the Lord appears to Abraham and says, I am the Almighty God, walk before me and be thou perfect. Now, we might listen to this and say, oh my gosh, that's a tall order. I, I just can't ever commit a sin ever again or ever, any transgression. The reality is we are all going to mess up. So is this really what God's asking is to never, ever in all your life ever make any mistake? I think that what we actually have going on here is that the word perfect is a technical covenantal word that means loyalty. That God is saying, I want you to walk with me. Now again, think about a marriage relationship. You don't want one partner in front or one behind. It's right side by side. And I want you to be loyal to me. So when you see that word perfect, if you actually think of the word loyal or faithful, that might be getting closer to what God's asking of Abraham. He's saying, Abraham, I'm offering all these promises. I now what I want in return from you is your love and loyalty and faithfulness. Now, how do we make this happen today? We've said this before. The sacrament is a great opportunity every week to declare your loyalty to God that you will walk with him. And that's why I think Genesis chapter 17, verse 1 is so powerful, because it still resonates today. God wants to walk with us, and he wants our loyalty, our love, and our faithfulness. And 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 I think even to, to add and, and complement that, that there are uh, connotations in this word that, that is perfect, that, that means like um, completed, 
yeah. or fulfilled or made whole, right? So it, it seems to me, I, I think you're right. I, I think he's saying, uh, I mean, you think about it, if we were to say this, walk before the, me and be completed. Now, we'll come back to loyal in a second because I think that's absolutely part of it, but let's think of it in this way. Walk before me and be completed, and I will make a covenant between me and thee. I think part of what he's saying is, I'm going to help complete you. Let's make this covenant. That's your next step in being completed. It's your next, uh, the next phase of, of being made whole is to make this covenant with me. And then if you're loyal in that covenant, if you're striving within that covenant, then I'll keep moving you along until eventually we get the full completion, the full made whole, right? But, but he seems to be saying, let's take the next step in that right now. You demonstrate that loyalty and I'm going to get you through this. That's a great insight. This, it's that circle. You cannot get to that perfection or completion without God. I love the way you made that connection. So some of you are probably thinking, wait a minute, I thought he had already made that covenant back in chapter 15, and even before, multiple times in 12, and back in Abraham 2, and parts of Abraham 1, the element is there. It's back to what Carrie had said earlier. Just because God has made a covenantal connection with you in the past, at your baptism, or your endowment, or at your sealing, doesn't mean that you can't strengthen and deepen and and establish a deeper covenantal connection with God, and that's what you see going on here. Look at the wording, by the way, in verse 7, and I will establish my covenant between me and thee. Did you notice the, the significant thing that often gets overlooked? Who establishes the covenant? It's not Abraham writing up this legalese document and saying, God, I'm going to do all of this, and if I do this, then you have to do this. Sign here. It's, it's not us who set the terms of the agreement. We don't establish the covenant. We're not the messenger of the covenant. We don't build the covenant. That's God who does that. And by the way, it strikes me as absolutely awe-inspiring that the God of the universe, a being who has infinite power, infinite knowledge, infinite capacity, would care so intimately and infinite perfectedly about little old me and you and you and you, that, that this God of the universe would actually take the time to come to Abraham and to us individually and say, I care about you. I want you to have this relationship with me, and I've set the terms of the agreement. They're, they're not ne- those aren't negotiable. Are you willing to do it? Yeah, it makes sense to me why I would want to bind myself to God, right? I just want God to strap me to his back and take me there. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> but, but why would God want to bind himself to us? And the only answer is love, right? There's nothing else. Um, as you said, that kind of being has no other motive to bind himself, to tie himself to us. Now let's look, let's start over again in verse 7. I will establish my covenant, noticing the personal pronouns here, between me and thee and thy seed after thee in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. Did you notice the wording? To be a God unto thee. Look at verse 8, and I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee, because that's what a God has the capacity to do. A God can actually give things. I will give unto thee and thy seed after thee the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. He's, 
he just keeps reestablishing it, and now the entire rest of the Old Testament, from here moving forward, God is faithful. God doesn't get tired of the people like his prophets often do and like we get tired of each other. God is faithful, but you're going to find that the entire rest of the story is variations on a covenantal breaking theme and reestablishing it where they're going after false gods, God reestablishes the covenant, brings them back, reconnects, and then they're going to go away. We, like we said, not just the pride cycle, it's this covenantal cycle. Yeah. We watch it over and over and over again. And gratefully, that's just applicable to the Old Testament and not to the 21st century, <laughs> right? <laughs> that's one of the great keys to learning from the Old Testament, is to recognize that what God does with his covenant people as a whole, he does with covenant individuals. So as you read about what covenant Israel is doing, right, and it's going to take us a couple generations to get where we're going to call it Israel, but it's really only a couple generations away from the Abraham story. What, when we read about what covenant, what God does with covenant Israel, he is going to do that with you as a covenant individual. And what uh, covenant Israel, Israel tends to do, strain, is what we as individuals tend to do. And so we should, as we read this, ask ourselves, not if you're doing, you know, when we read about stupid things they do in the wilderness or whatever else, stupid idolatry, don't ask yourself if you're doing it, ask yourself how you're doing it and then look for how God is going to work with you while you're doing it. So to finish off chapter 17, you'll notice up to this point God has been telling Abraham, this is what I'm going to do, you've got to be faithful, and the sign that God picks for Abraham in their generation for their faithfulness is in verse 10. This is my covenant which ye shall keep between me and you and thy seed after thee. Every man-child among you shall be circumcised. Interestingly, it's these verses here, 10 through 14, that later on in the early uh, movement of Christians um, in the book of Acts, even though they didn't call themselves Christians, it was other people had called them that, um, you get this big battle between many Jewish Christian converts and Gentile Christian converts over this question of do you really have to keep the law of Moses and this this part of the Abrahamic covenant in order to then become a, a convert to the to the church and be baptized? And it's going to be a very divisive issue for them. Yeah. But yeah. eventually they, they conclude that it is not necessary anymore. Jesus is the updated covenant. But it will still be a sign throughout the rest of the Old Testament when you see them say uncircumcised, that means someone not of the covenant, right? And and circumcised someone of the covenant. As we finish. Uh, we just wanted to point out the fact that the message of the, the scriptures, the message of our prophets, the message of the angels, the message of all of eternity is that the infinite God of the universe is infinitely interested in little old me and you, and he's reaching out to us to not just establish at a superficial level some sort of a connection where we say a prayer once in a while and open a scripture once in a while and go to church every once in a while to check the boxes, but a deep and abiding, cleaving covenant to connect us with him eternally. Uh, it, it blows me away to, to contemplate that level of love and that level of care and compassion for us who have nothing to really offer him but he has everything to offer us, and we leave that with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Mm -hmm. Know that you're loved. Mm -hmm.